Um, so nice to be back in our room again after being in the main sanctuary for many weeks, a num number of weeks. <clears throat> um, and I wasn't here last week, so Richard was here, Richard Shankman, which very much appreciate Richard coming. Um, and I would like to continue to talk about uh, one of the themes I've been talking about a little bit over uh, the last period of time, which is the three characteristics. And in Buddhism has a lot of different lists. And you know, sometimes on my computer I can look for talks by it's part of the two this or the three that or four this or five that or six this or seven that or eight this. And, um, and so uh, the three characteristics are one of the Buddhist lists. And it's something the Buddha pointed at and that keeps getting pointed at because it's helpful for people to um, wake up or to be themselves in a more relaxed and um, authentic way. And so the three characteristics are anicca, dukkha, anatta, the Pali words. Anicca is impermanence. And so I've talked about impermanence a few times. And then uh, anatta is, no, anicca, uh, dukkha, anatta. Dukkha is commonly translated as suffering. And anatta is translated as not self. And I'll say more about uh, them. Uh, but this week I'm going to focus more on the dukkha part of anicca, dukkha, anatta, of the three characteristics. And, and they're called characteristics because they're characteristics of reality. They're not bad things, good things, right or wrong. They're just a little bit the way things are. And the first one's anicca, which is impermanence, which is easy, like everybody gets it, either intellectually or actually, that everything is impermanent. Everybody got that? Is that clear? Like, like a kind of no-brainer, right? It's like, and so an impermanence also pointing not just that nothing is um, permanent, but everything changes. And that's part of reality. That's a normal, natural part of reality. And so I talked about that a bit for a few different weeks. <clears throat> and now I want to talk about dukkha. And dukkha, it's, it's a great word, dukkha, and I like the word very much, and I tend to use it a lot because it, it's a very broad word. It means a lot of things. The most common English translation is suffering, right? Everybody know what suffering is? Everybody, anybody not had any suffering? Right? It's very normal suffering or, or difficulty. Or here's some other translations that are part of dukkha. Um, because even suffering is not, um, it, it's an okay broad definition. Another good broad definition that uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu likes to use is stress. Right? Like anybody not had stress. Right? It's very common that we have stress, and stress can be very normal or very ordinary, very simple, very everyday-ish, 
where stress can be really difficult, really bad stress. You know, like war is stressful for most people. <clears throat> and so different words that are part of the dukkha uh, domain or the terrain of dukkha, suffering, sorrow, misery, dis-ease, right? Dis-ease or discomfort is part of dukkha or discontentment is part of dukkha or the imperfection of things is part of dukkha or the insubstantiality of things is part of dukkha or of course pain, hurt or, or a kind of a sense of unsatisfa unsatisfactoriness with ourselves or our experience or the world or reality, whatever it might be, right? So everybody get a flavor of the terrain because the terrain is broad. It's not just, you know, like death is dukkha, but in, in Buddhism, birth is dukkha, right? Life is, has dukkha as part of it. It's not a mistake. It's not, uh, it's not necessarily a problem. It's part of what we want to start to learn how to be aware of, pay attention to, get a little more relaxed with, and then see what happens as we are more comfortable with the fact that dukkha is part of human reality. <clears throat> and the Buddha said, he has a famous line, it's, uh, the quote is, I, I teach one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha. Like that's a very famous Buddhist line. It's a great promo for Buddhism, right? I mean, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. Which I always think that's two things, dukkha and the end of dukkha, but that's my own mind you're seeing. <clears throat> But it is what he was pointing at. And so dukkha is woven through the Buddhist teachings, right? The numbers, Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths, which maybe are the core of Buddhist teaching, are about dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the path that leads to freedom. Those are the four truths. Dukkha, suffering, the end of suffering, uh, the suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path that leads to the end of suffering. <clears throat> and so it's, I, I, it's here, this is hard to say, but I'll say it. I like dukkha, meaning I don't like suffering. <laughs> I, I don't, but I like the understanding because the understanding brings some freedom. That I like. And so I like that dukkha isn't uh, the fact we've done something wrong and it's our mistake and that's why there's dukkha. No, there's dukkha because everything, or here's one example, like everything comes based on causes and conditions and the causes and conditions even of happiness are impermanent, so they'll change. So, so happiness won't stay like at a, on a straight line. Happiness goes up and down. And so there's dukkha at times. It's just 
normal. It's not your fault. Actually, Wes Nisker, who's going to come and teach when I'm gone in May, I believe he's here May 8th, he's, um, he's got a new book uh, that uh, he sent me, so I got the book. It's got a great title, and the title is, You Are Not Your Fault. <laughs> that's a, that, in my mind, that's a great title. And it's pointing at a few things. One is it's pointing at the third characteristic, which is the not-self component of reality. But also it's just pointing at the, how much we blame ourselves for dukkha, how much judgment we have about ourselves for dukkha. And, and it's really part of the human misunderstanding of the way things are. It's not our fault. I mean, we, we can make mistakes. I'm not, I'm not Pollyanna about that. And we want to be able to see when we make mistakes and learn from our mistakes, because that's how we mature. But, but re reality has dukkha. Human life will have dukkha. Your, your problems, your own personal psychological dukkha is not your fault. It's part of the human reality. And it's why there are skillful means like uh, um, psychotherapy or support groups or 12-step, um, or right? Because there's dukkha and we have dukkha. And so you might consider for a moment, um, what kind of dukkha do you have, right? And watch out for your judging mind about it. Like, oh, you shouldn't have it, or you're not supposed to have it, or you should be over it. That's one, especially people who are spiritual think. They think, oh, I should, I've practiced now for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and why am I still suffering? So you might consider what kind of dukkha you have. And I wrote it's a bunch of different kinds of dukkha. And... Um, that's a personal dukkha. Psychological dukkha is a very normal dukkha. The sense of self, the general sense of self, is a construct. Is a construct. It's been constructed from our childhood, from our past, and, and a totally normal thing and a good thing. It's good to have a sense of self. It's good to have a functioning ego. Um, but it may have its limitations and the limitations we don't have to be identified with we can be aware of and work with them as skillfully as possible without blaming ourselves for our own limitations and I know a little bit about this psychological limitations partly because I was a therapist for many years and also because I'm a human being and I've had some serious psychological dukkha when I was a kid. You know, I don't know this group, some people know this, but I'll say it. Um, when I was 14, I was put in a mental hospital in Detroit because I'd quit school. And it's illegal to quit school when you're 14, right? That's not okay. And so the government started to give my parents a lot of shit because I wasn't going to school. And I had, and then finally the, my family came to me and said, look, you have two options. You can go to this mental hospital 
or they'll make you a ward of the court and you'll go to juvenile home. And luckily I had enough sense to think, oh, I don't want to go to juvie. So I went to the mental hospital, which was actually great. And this is a long time ago, so it was a, I was incarcerated, you know, I was in a locked ward on a mental hospital for adolescent boys. And um, what was really nice is it was when psycho, at least it was a while ago, it was before so many drugs were used to treat psychological difficulty. So I wasn't treated with drugs, I was treated with individual therapy, group therapy, uh, some kind of occupational therapy. Uh, I'm trying to remember, there was one other family therapy that was actually totally liberating for me to have my family come in. <laughs> Here, this is a true story. I haven't thought of this in a long time. <laughs> but, but, okay, so I'm 14 and I'm in, I'm in this, you know, locked ward and it was, it was okay, you know, it wasn't bad. And I had a good shrink and very cool guy. And, uh, and, uh, and I had to go to family therapy. My family comes in, my family is not, was not sophisticated about psychology at all. Like we were like, we're, I never know what to say. Were we lower class or we were, we were either upper lower class or lower middle class, somewhere around there. But, and, and they didn't know, they didn't know anything about psychology. And my parents came in, maybe one of my brothers was there also. And, uh, and this shit started happening, you know, in the family therapy. And I remember sitting there, and this is true, I remember seeing like, if you could see the bubble in my head, the bubble said, oh, this is not my shit. <laughs> you know, this was, this was other stuff. And I had become what they call in psychology, the identified patient. But it was, there was family dukkha. And that's normal, families have dukkha. Um, but it was quite something to, to get help for with that kind of dukkha at that age, which was very skillful help. And then I'm, this is, I'm just going through my list now. So, so I put, first I put personal, psychological, physical, right? Like we all have or will have physical dukkha. That's normal for all beings, all living beings. They go like this. They, they are born and they live for a while and then shit happens and then they die. Like that's normal. That's not something's wrong or it's a mistake, but it has its dukkha component to it. And as many of you know, I've had some serious physical dukkha in the last few years from being an avid bike rider and, uh, and missing my mark uh, on some of the downhills. And so, and you know, and I can laugh about it now, but that was some serious dukkha, like life-threatening dukkha. And very, uh, and, and yet, it was also normal dukkha, meaning shit happens, right? Especially if you do, if you're athletic or you do stuff or you ride bikes or you, you know, and I'd, I'd like to do things. I like to, I like bodies and I like moving my body. I like being athletic. 
I'm trying to be much more careful now about my bike riding, and I am. I'm meaning I'm riding, uh, I'm not doing a lot of big downhills on my fast bike, and I've learned uh, something. <laughs> I'm doing CrossFit these days. I'm, you know, those are minor injuries so far. Um, but also, dukkha, physical, social dukkha, right? Depending on, on our socialness, relational dukkha, right? If, if you're in a relationship, here, this was something, this is, I'm, I was told I should be more per personal, so I'm trying to tell some stories. Here's, here's some, my wife and I, um, my wife wanted to get married, uh, and I didn't want to get married, because I'd been married. I was like, okay, I've done that, I'm not doing that again. And she pushed for it, and then and we did some therapy, we did some couples therapy, which I always find really helpful. And after like two couples therapy, I was like, oh, of course I'll marry you, you know, you're wonderful, I love you, you know, let's get married. And then we got married, and then at some point, she wasn't so happy. <laughs> and I said, what, what's, what's wrong? She said, well, I thought getting married would make me totally happy. And I said, boy, I could have told you that wouldn't work. <laughs> I thought I was <laughs> clear about that already. I've been married. <laughs> you know, but meaning, meaning it's, if you're, you, oh, I remember, here's the other story about it. We were teaching once, once somewhere, I think in Colorado, we were teaching together a weekend on, uh, on a not on, on not self. And, uh, but at the end, everybody wanted to know about our relationship because we were married and we're Dharma teachers and oh, isn't it wonderful, you know, that you're Buddhist and you're married. And I'm like, it, I'm like well, I'll, I'll say one real thing to them, I said, which is, it's good, but it's dukkha. <laughs> Because it's part of life, and meaning relationships have their own dukkha. And here's, I'll give another example, as long as I'm being personal. Um, my wife is gone, sitting a retreat right now at Spirit Rock for the month, which I'm a little jealous of, but I'm happy for her, really happy she's getting to sit. I'm jealous that I'm not sitting with her also. but. Um, but it was interesting. She left, and you know, and I wondered how it would be, you know, because you know we've been together a long time, and and she left, and then it was like, oh, I was missing her, and I was really, it was like, first of all, I don't like to cook, and she's, <laughs> it's really kind that way, meaning she cooks a bunch. But, and so I was like, okay, I'm cooking and I'm doing this stuff and I'm not happy she's not here. And then after about three or four days, it was like, oh, this is great she's not here. <laughs> first, of all, first of all, I get to be alone, which not necessarily that I like it, but good things happen when we're alone. And I really appreciated the, the, the space of being alone. And you know, I'm totally happy she's coming back and all, but I'm, at this point, I'm having a really good time with the dukkha of her having left. 
right? Because it's one of the paradoxes about dukkha. It's about our relationship to the dukkha. That's part of the paradox of practice. And that's why practice is so, in my uh, ordinary language, cool. It's why practice is so important. Because there is going to be dukkha. And then we see, oh, we can be okay with the dukkha. And it gives us a whole different relationship with our lives and with reality. Because reality is not going to be perfect. So I'll say a little more, but uh, just other kinds. Social uh, dukkha, political dukkha, right? Anybody notice any of that lately? <laughs> right? Like what a strange deal with this elections stuff. And, you, and these people, whoever they are, think they're going to lead and, and that they're supposed to lead. This is a different uh, flavor, a different religious flavor of mine comes in, which is oi. <laughs> which is, which is, some of these people are like, wow, that's, and you know, it's part of human life, political dukkha, right? And it's been part of human life forever, right? It's not just America, or it's not just China, or it's not just whoever we could pick, it's everywhere. And then, then there's, I'll just name a few, cultural dukkha, racial dukkha, sexual dukkha, gender dukkha, right? Whatever group that we might be a part of, affiliated with, which is really one of the beauties of the human experience is the different uniqueness that's here and that we share together can often bring dukkha because of bias, because of prejudice, because of unconsciousness, because of history that hasn't been uh, metabolized. And I could talk a lot about that. I'm not going to go into that right now, but that's a form of dukkha that we all experience whether we know it or not. Really, because sometimes people in the majorities think they're not having any dukkha. They're unaware of the dukkha of bias or prejudice, meaning of their own bias and prejudice and the dukkha of that, the limitation of that. Um, and then there's um, the dukkha of the spiritual life and the spiritual world. Because spirituality has its own dukkha, right? It will put you face to face with dukkha. And, that, and that's not usually how we sell Buddhism, right? We sell Buddhism with compassion and loving kindness and awakening and freedom. And those are all true. But remember the four truths, right? Dukkha, the cause of dukkha then the end of dukkha. They're all part of what leads to freedom, which is dukkha and the cause of dukkha. And most of us don't actually want to, we're all resistant to coming face to face with our dukkha, to being intimate with our dukkha, and to not being judgmental of our dukkha, like believing that's our fault. If once we start to back off the superego, the judging mind, the critic, 
then we can start to get a little more interested, curious about the suffering we're actually experiencing because it's your awareness and your presence which will liberate the dukkha, part of the paradox. <clears throat> and, you know, of course the dukkha will come many, many different ways and it comes in very subtle ways or soft ways um, that I've seen, like um, sometimes when people are leaving, it's very painful for us in relational dukkha, right? It's very painful, relationship breaks up. But even sometimes with a friend that's moving away for a good reason, it's also dukkha or somebody somebody who works with you and they realize, oh, it's not the right thing to do anymore and they need to do something else and it's good, it's all good, but still it's got the, the heart pain of things changing and it's part of the dukkha of impermanence. It's part of the innate dukkha of impermanence that things will change. And then, of course, as I said, people dying is part of dukkha. And I had, I was work, working with somebody, let me think who I was working with, a student who I was talking to, having a conversation with, who I've worked with for many, many years, uh, who's a doctor. And I, and I had this funny um, thought. I'd asked about another doctor who uh, I knew that she knew because I had, I'd worked with a bunch of doctors at UCSF at least 10 years ago, 15 years ago, quite a while ago. Really great people. And, uh, and this one woman, Ellen Hughes, who uh, was there and just a beautiful bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is an awakening being in Buddhism, but really it's someone who awakens for the benefit of everybody. And she was this kind of person and just a beautiful being. And Sister Abby, who was here two weeks ago, total bodhisattva being. And, um, and so I, I remembered this woman who I'd been, she, she'd come into my mind about a week ago and I thought, oh, I should call Ellen. Ellen Hughes was the doctor. And uh, from UCSF, and uh, I said, "Oh, uh, is Ellen you still at UCSF? Do you do you do you, I, do you are you still in touch with her?" And she said, "Oh no, I'm sorry. I, I guess you didn't know she died a year ago." And I didn't know she died a year ago, and she had cancer or something. It came, and I hadn't been in touch with her in a number of years, and 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 I was sad, really sad, because this was a beautiful being, and it's. And, and yet it's totally normal, right? We're all gonna die. That's part of the deal. But, and so the dukkha is part of life. It's not a mistake. <clears throat> and the paradox of dukkha, or one of the paradoxes of practice in dukkha is that dukkha and the causes of dukkha lead to the end of dukkha, lead to freedom. And so it's, <clears throat> it's always something 
to start to see how Dharma works, how Buddhist practice works in a living way for ourselves. Because that's why you're all here. Great to hear whatever my stories are, whatever I know, and, you know, hopefully it's helpful, but really it's your life. It's the temporary aliveness that's sitting here. That's what's important. And that's what's important for each of us to start to wake up to. And then to wake up to the shared aliveness that we share together and to practice for the benefit of all. But it starts right in our seat. It starts right here. <clears throat> Ajahn Chah said, if the mind is not yet free, or the mind and heart, it's, a, it's the same word uh, in the Pali, if the mind and heart are not yet free, contemplate the cause and effect of each situation until the heart-mind sees clearly and can free itself from its own conditioning. And that's part of what we learn how to do in practice. We learn how to get here in a very intimate way, in a very full way, in a very body-heart-mind way. <clears throat> And then the fullness of being starts to metabolize the dukkha, starts to digest the dukkha, that we can start to respond to dukkha with kindness and with care and with compassion and with intelligence and with our, with our uh, creativity and with all the beautiful qualities that come with being a mature human being or, or a human being who's starting to wake up to the way things are. And so dukkha becomes one of the great doorways to compassion, to love. <clears throat> Oscar Wilde put it a little differently in his poetic way. He said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. Where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. And that's uh, part of the paradox that we like to hear about, but we don't really want to know personally, <laughs> right? Where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. And what I mean by that is, Something about the dukkha humbles us. And I mean that in a very good way. I mean it brings us down to earth, down to reality, down to the truth of what it is to be a human being and to the potential for that, of that humanness to start to taste or know the sacred ground. <clears throat> Here's something else I, I found it today. You know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of quotes <laughs> that I've accumulated over the years. But this was an, this I thought was interesting. It's called, it's from an article, I think it was in, in HP. Is that a newspaper kind of thing online? HP. Huffington Post, thank you, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's an article called The Surprising Benefit of Going Through Hard Times. The Surprising Benefit of Going Through Hard Times. Psychological, psych, psychologists studying post-traumatic growth 
find that many people come to thrive in the aftermath of adversity. Right? This is part of the paradox. And I'll just read a little bit because it's so nice what they say. I mean, it's interesting what they say. One of Freda Kahlo's most famous self-portraits depicts her in a hospital bed, naked and bleeding, connected by a web of red veins to floating objects that include a snail, a flower, a bone, and a fetus. And it also has, it's in Henry Ford Hospital is where the painting takes place. So I have my own relationship because Henry Ford Hospital was in Detroit. Um, and it's a 1932 surrealist painting. And it's a powerful rendering of Kahlo's second miscarriage. And she wrote in her diaries that the painting carries with it the message of pain. The painter was known for channeling the experience of multiple miscarriages, childhood polio, and a number of other misfortunes into her ironic, iconic self-portraits. And a real understanding of her work requires some knowledge of the suffering that motivated it. Now that's something that most artists understand, either consciously or unconsciously. The art is part of the transformation of one's suffering. And they go on to say the phenomena of art, the phenomenon of art born from adversity can only be can be seen not only as in the lives of famous creators, but also in the lab. In the past 20 years, psychologists have begun studying post-traumatic growth which has now been observed in more than 300 scientific studies, blah, blah, blah. The term was coined in the 90s uh, by uh, psychologists uh, to describe instances of individuals who experience profound transformation as they coped with various types of trauma and challenging life circumstances. Up to 70% of trauma survivors report some positive psychological growth. Research has found growth after trauma can take a number of different forms, including a greater appreciation of life, the identification of new possibilities for one's life, more satisfying interpersonal relationships, a richer spiritual life, and a connection to something greater than oneself. Okay, that, that's beautiful Buddhist understanding of what's possible with suffering. And it doesn't mean we like suffering or suffering is good. It means it's part of reality and how we relate to it. The more we can relate with a little bit of balance, getting the help we need, support we need, and awareness and the knowing of it and the getting intimate with it leads to awakening or freedom or realization or post-traumatic, you know, positive conditions. <clears throat> and it's part of the paradox of practice that many poets have described here. This is from uh, Ghalib, who said, which one do I want? Yeah, who said, for the raindrop, joy is in entering the river unbearable be, be pain becomes its own cure. Travel far enough into sorrow and tears turn into sighing. 
and this is another somebody uh, Rashani said there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken there a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable there is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength <clears throat> And this is part of the paradox of practice, is we always think we know what's going to happen if the bad thing happens. And we don't know. I mean, we, we do know and we don't know. That's even a better way to say it, which is, of course, Eugene's paradoxical nature. Um, meaning, um, things are bad. Bad things really happen. And they're tragic. And they're painful and they're, they hurt, and yet, and yet, and the and yet, and yet is a quote from a Buddhist haiku that I don't remember the exact haiku, but it's, it, excuse me, maybe it's not a haiku, but it was a re writing, and I don't know if I can remember exactly who, but it was a Japanese man talking about the death of his young daughter. And, uh, and, and he, he says something to the effect about how, uh, you know, how fragile life is and how poignant it is and how difficult it is, and yet, and yet. And the and yet is about something else also. There's something more than just the dukkha. There's also the end of dukkha, which is part of the human potential. <clears throat> and I'll read you one last quote. This is from my teacher, Hamid Ali. He said, the more we are in touch with ourselves, the more we feel our innate desire to know and to be who we really are. We want, the more we, the more we feel our innate, des our innate desire to know and to be who we really are. We want the freedom to live and to fulfill all our potential. When we don't, we suffer. When we don't, we suffer. But that suffering is, a simp is simply a hunger. That suffering is simply a hunger for our true selves to live, to be free. It is a signal that we want to return to our true nature. So that's a beautiful understanding from Hamid about the root of suffering on a certain level. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.